You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Wednesday, June 9th. I am joined by Jared Dillian of the Daily Dirt Nap. Jared, how are you doing? What's up? <laughs> <laughs> Things are good over here. So, Jared, summer is in full swing. Uh, the market today was somewhat boring. Bonds rallied. Everyone, Jared, is worried about one thing or thinking about one thing, and that is the consumer price index data that's coming out tomorrow, the inflation data um, the, the average people are bracing for about, I think, 4.7. Um, you have some economists estimates at 4.2, some as high as 5. You, Jared, are a little bit of an inflationista. In fact, you've been calling this for a long time. So the world is waking up towards your view. How are you thinking about this as this juncture, as the data is going to be coming down the pike tomorrow? Yeah, I am an inflationista, and I believe that the shift to an inflationary environment is permanent. But I think that the risk is to the downside on tomorrow's report. Um, I, I mean, look, like uh, the range of estimates for tomorrow's CPI is 4.2 to 5.0. Um, there's a lot of central tendency around economic data because economists don't want to be an outlier and be totally wrong. So if there is a surprise, I think it could be to the downside. And I, that's kind of what you're seeing play out in the capital markets. You know, the bonds have rallied quite a bit in the last couple of days. And, you know, some people are asking, and I think rightly so, is the bond market presaging a weak CPI number? Um, and I, I think that's I think that's very possible. So um, you know, I haven't done much in the way of hedging. Um, but this is the reason this is important is because of the narrative, because of the inflation narrative that is developed. And you know, the bond market is not acting according to the narrative. In fact, we had a 10-year note auction today that was wildly oversubscribed, had the best bid to cover for a while. And, you know, and we've had weakening auctions for the last few years. So th that was a big surprise. Um, but yeah, there is, I, I think, I think if CPI comes in below 4.5 tomorrow, so 4.4 lower, um, it's going to be a dent in the inflation narrative, and I think stocks probably trade lower. So that's what you think. You also said that if there's a three-handle, if there's below 4.0%, you think that all hell will break loose. What does that mean to you? What sort of hell is going to be breaking loose? Uh, I mean, a lot of people erroneously believe that um, the stock market generally responds positively to lower inflation numbers. Um, I don't think that's the case this time. You know, uh, there's been a lot of stocks that have rallied a lot because of inflation, because of inflation expectations. Um, so I think that, you know, I think if we just say, for example, if we printed 5%, I think it would be very positive for stocks. If, if the number comes in with a three handle, I think we could be down 150 basis points tomorrow. I think that's possible. So, um, you know, I, I am, uh, very vulnerable to this possibility. I haven't really done anything to protect or hedge. 
Um, so, you know, I'm a little worried about it and I'm going on vacation next week and, uh, and I'm, and I'm not going to look at any of this stuff for, for uh, nine days. So, and isn't there something, Jared, don't, when you go on vacation, doesn't the market tend to act up? Yeah. Whenever I go on vacation, the market crashes. So, okay. So I, I mean, legitimately so be buying puts. Yeah. And the, the best example, this is actually a great story. Um, back in 2007, you know, right when the market started to act funky, uh, in the beginning of the financial crisis, it was the summer of 2007, I had a trip planned to the Bahamas. And I just had, I had kind of a bad feeling. Um, and this was in the early days of VIX options. So VIX options, I think, started in 2006. So they were still pretty new. So I bought some upside calls in the VIX as a hedge. And, uh, but I didn't have any ability to trade them. So I said to the guys I was working with, you know, the guys in the desk, I said, if the VIX gets to 35, sell the calls. Well, it, it's 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 completely state dependent. So the VIX did get to 35. The market crashed. I was up $900,000 on that trade, but they were so busy that they forgot to sell the calls. And when I came back, I was only up 125,000. I was like, guys, you totally screwed me here. <laughs> That's a lot of money. So. That is, that's a really good story. So for people at home, the VIX is the fear index. It's a measure of like around the 30-day implied volatility for the S&P 500. So when people get really worried, the VIX spikes. Um, Jared, I've got a question for you. So we both know that if you could own the VIX outright, the spot VIX, it would be the world's best trade because it would, it would not decay and it would be inversely correlated to the S&P 500. But what you have to do is buy uh, futures on the, S uh, on the VIX or as you did, options. And if, if options do spike, that's obviously a great trade, as, as it was for you back in the day. But I've got a question for you. What do you think about the contango, the fact that normally the, the VIX curve is upward sloping, so you really have to pay up? Um, do you think that now would be a good time to put on that trade? Because you know the VIX is still in the teens, despite the fact that we have some crazy things going on uh, beneath the surface in the market. You know, One thinks of, of the meme stocks, where implied vols are you know, perhaps in the, in the thousands. So what do you think about uh, volatility and specifically the VIX. Are you going to be putting on that trade that you did in 2007? No, I, I haven't traded. I, I haven't traded VIX in a long time. I I'm, I struggle with it. Um, let me just put it this way: Now is a better time than usual. Okay, I would say. You know, we've had 13, 14 days of realized volatility of less than one percent moves. You know, um, the I don't know if you saw the price action going into the close, but it, it got a little bit crappy. Um, so, you know, I think we, you know, I hesitate to say the word peak because it makes it sound like I'm calling a top, but, and I'm not, but, uh, I, th I think the next couple of weeks could get a little bit choppy. Yeah. So thanks for pointing that out. I actually didn't see it. Um, we did end quite weak. The Dow closing down 0.44%, S and P down 0.18 and the NASDAQ, uh, down just, just nine basis points. Um, we, we were approaching all-time highs, Jerry. What's your sense of the, the general sentiment in, in the market? Well, sentiment is very ebullient. Okay, it's, it's very positive. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe this would be a good time to have a discussion about the meme stocks. You know, AMC, I don't really know all the meme stocks. I mean, you mentioned some before we came on, but I know AMC and GameStop. I don't really follow this stuff. Um, you know, I... Um, I'm a long-term investor, okay, now, but, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I was a trader, okay? So if I'm going to put my trader hat on for a second and I'm going to decide what to do 
with the meme stocks. You know, the correct trade in these stocks is actually the suicidal trade, which is to sell upside calls. You see, if you have something that has a implied volatility of 500, 700, 1,000, you don't want to be buying options. You want to be selling options, okay? So with AMC at 300, if you sell, you know, the 450 strike calls, I, I have no idea what the premium is on that, but it's probably massive. Um, like that's, that's the trade. So, uh, but I don't do, I don't do that stuff anymore. Um, mm -hmm. you know, you know, my newsletter is a lot slower moving. So, but if, but if I were going to play in the meme stocks, that's what I would do. Okay. And would you be putting a spread on selling the three fifties, uh, for, for GME and buying the, the four fifties or are you, are you playing uncapped? Uncapped. Yeah. <laughs> that's the only way to do it. I've got a question. What do you think about selling the puts? Well, that's the other thing you could do. You could do like a really wide strangle, you know, mm -hmm. you could sell like the 100, 500 strangle. And uh, that's, that, that's actually, that might even be a smarter trade. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that I've been looking at and my, some, my colleague Weston has been looking at this um, is just some spreads on these um, call spreads where the let's say the 300 for workhorse where it's about 18 it's an electric vehicle company very um speculative highly shorted about 40 percent short interest and it also has proven it, it was there was a time when it was trading at 60 dollars. what my colleague wesson um did is just the implied vol for the 60 call was so absurdly high that he could buy the 40 and sell the 60 for a relatively low amount of time so there's a lot of uh um different moves strangles butterflies you people can get uh very profitable trade, they could also get tangled in. Um, so that's sort of the technical aspect. But Jared, what would psychological advice, if at all, would you have for people who are trading these these roller coasters memes? Yeah, I mean, you just have to keep in mind that, uh, you know, the meme stocks, we used to call them story stocks. They had a different name 20 years ago. I mean, meme stocks have been around for a long time. This isn't new, we just called them something different. And one of these story stocks from 20 years ago just went public again. Krispy Kreme donuts. Like back 1999, 2000, the ticker was KKD. It has a different ticker today. It's D nut, uh, which maybe is better. But um, <laughs> but KKD was a story stock, and it was heavily shorted. It was the same thing. It was a meme stock, you know. And there, I was thinking of another one the other day from back then. Um, but I. I've never played in one of the one of these stocks. I typically avoid these things. But back to what I was saying, they're they're a symptom of market sentiment, okay? And it's not a coincidence. Uh, Taser was actually another one in two thousand three. Uh, they're they're a symptom of speculative excess, okay? So if you notice, these types of things don't tend to happen at market bottoms. You know what I mean? They happen at the tops. So um, you know, I've been watching this for a while and. Um, you know, I'm too old to do something like, you know, just say, you know, look at AMC, look at GameStop, short the market. Like it, it just, you know, it takes a long time for things to top and maybe it's topping right now. I don't know. Kind of doubt it. Um, but it's a symptom of the speculative excess in the market. And so, Jerry, you said it's a symbol of tops, but to, to what degree do you think it's possible that we're in a world where there's sort of is no top or the tops take much longer to form because this chaos started in January with GME. We had a lot of warning signals there. The VIX flashed um, higher, but
but the S&P 500 is now a good deal higher than it was in January. So how, to what degree do you think that this, this sort of badness um, can have broader contagion effects on the underlying stocks, like the big names, or do you think they're sort of different worlds? Well, they're totally different worlds. There haven't been any contagion effects at all. Um, you know, like I said, there's been no volatility in the index, and you've had huge amounts of volatility in the meme stocks. Um, what was the question? Um, so it was about contagion. Oh, yeah, I don't think there's really a risk of contagion. But look, like, this isn't going to end until we start meaningfully tightening monetary policy, okay? Which, you know, I, I'd like to point out that we're in the early stages of it. I mean, the early, this is the first inning, maybe the top of the second. But, you know, the Fed is talking about tapering asset purchases. So uh, if I were to put a date on when that's going to happen, I'd probably say towards the end of this year, you know, um, which would set us up for a rate hike in the second half of 2022. Um, and then you have, you know, four rate hikes a year for a couple of years. Then it's 2023, 2024. And then the yield curve inverts, they hike too much, and then down you go. So that's the pattern that I've seen over and over again in my career, which is why, you know, I'm not shorting stocks. I'm not putting on any bearish bets because it, it's just going to take a long time for this to happen. And no bearish bets at all, not even on the profitless tech company that led the decline in, say, February that you were actually short. And with that, that was a trade that worked out well. You're not thinking of, of shorting those. You're not bearish on those. Or what, what's, what, how are you thinking about sort of the, the Teslas, the, the DocuSigns, the Zooms? Yeah, I mean, that was, that was just an exceptional you know, setup. Uh, I think that was a one-time deal. Um, and look, like, you know, growth has been outperforming for the last week or two, you know? Um, Tommy Thornton uh, emailed me the other day. He's like, you know, all the garbage stocks are rallying. And, you know, what he refers to as garbage stocks are, you know, the Kathy Wood stocks and the SPACs and stuff like that. But all that stuff has been rallying. You know, so for the last week or two, growth has been outperforming. But I think over a five to 10-year time frame, I think value is going to outperform. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sticking with the value trade long term. So the value trade, when I hear that, I think energy, I think financials, I think industrials, perhaps materials as well. I know you uh, have gone full hog on energy. That's obviously been a good trade. Even as bond yields have declined over the past month and a half, the energy trade has continued to work. It's just that the price appreciation is a little less exponential. It's been more grinding higher broadly with, with the market. Um, has your outlook on energy changed? I think the, the last time we spoke was before the uh, OPEC meeting, which, which had uh, big consequences. Um, yeah, what, what's your outlook on energy? And are there any, any other uh, aspects of the value trade you've got your eye on? Uh, yeah, energy. I'm, you know, I'm still. I'm. We're closer to the end of that trade than the than the beginning. Okay, and I'm not saying it's time to sell tomorrow. I'm just saying, you know, over a trade that's going to last two years or three years, we're in the second half. Okay, so I'm not looking for opportunities to buy. I'm looking for I'm looking for the right place to sell. So I, th I, you know, I come in and I turn on my Bloomberg and I, th I think about that every day. I saw a chart of rig counts today and, you know, uh, rigs, uh, rig counts are up, you know, marginally from the lows. But if you look at the chart going back 20 years, it's still at extremely low levels. Um, and we, we, st we still really haven't gotten into the summer traveling season. So, you know, I do think that there's some more upside in energy to extract.
Mm -hmm. And what about those other pockets in the value sector, financials, industrials? Uh, I haven't put a, a lot of thought into financials. I have, I do have one financial stock. Um, you know, with what's been going on in the bond market the last couple of days, uh, you know, I, I have an insurance stock and it hasn't really been great. Um, I, I don't. I, I'm. It, none of us are very good at forecasting interest rates. Let's put it that way. I've gotten it right a couple times. I've gotten it wrong a bunch of times. Um, I still think that yields are going higher in the long term. Uh, I don't fully understand why bonds have rallied so much in the last couple of days. And by the way, like traders intuition, if something moves and I don't understand why, it's usually a problem. It's usually a, it's usually a problem, you know. I know what you mean. So you just you said you don't understand why, but could we explore some reasons? Does it mean that growth is not going to be as uh, you know as high as as we think? Inflation is going to be more muted than we think. What does the bond market know that that we don't, Jared? Uh, I don't know. I mean, we can speculate. I mean, you know, it's not great for value stocks that bonds are rallying. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, I think I think growth is exceptional and I think it will continue to be exceptional throughout the summer in the second half of this year. So it, it's uh, I don't know if this is as a result of flows I mean, there were half a trillion dollars worth of bids that showed up to the auction today. Like, it's it's unbelievable. And I understand why. I understand that there's big interest rate differentials and we have higher yields in the U.S. than the rest of the world. But that's still astounding, you know. So there's something I'm not getting here. Do you think, Jared, it has anything to do with the, the plumbing of the bond market and the, the uh, you know, reemergence of the reverse repo facility where, like, half a trillion dollars are hypothecated um, overnight. So, you know, the, the Fed sort of warehouses that. No, no, I don't think it has anything to do with that. No. Got you. Uh, Jared, one more question on the meme stocks. We covered the, the options world, the world of derivatives, but let's just talk about short selling, specifically naked short selling. So short selling is selling something that you don't own, but first you have to borrow it. Naked short selling is when you haven't actually borrowed it. A lot of people, um, um, in the, in the world, and a lot of people specifically on Twitter are accusing hedge funds and, and financial, uh, big financial firms of naked short selling. To what degree do you believe it? Well, that shouldn't be possible, okay? Because back in, I believe it was 2008, uh, the SEC uh, implemented a regulation called Reg Show, SHO. And uh, what Reg Show did was um, it got rid of the uptick rule. So, you know, if you go back before then, if you were going to short something, you had to do it on an uptick. So it got rid of the uptick rule. But in an ex in exchange, you actually had to locate stock that you were going to borrow. And I remember this quite well because, you know, I was trading at Lehman at the time. And we kind of had to redesign our trading applications because if you were going to sell something short, there was a, there was a little button that you had to click that was a locate button as to where you were going to locate the stock. Um, so I don't, I, I don't, if, if everybody's doing what they're supposed to, I don't see how naked short selling is, is even possible. Maybe, maybe there's something I'm not getting. Yeah, there's definitely something, you know, so much more about this than I do. There's something I'm not getting. Uh, people send me a lot of stuff on Twitter to a site where they quote the short volume and then they quote the total volume for, for daily flows. And then they divide those two numbers and they get a certain percentage and then they compare that to the short interest. But it's my understanding from reading FINRA 
uh, where the data is sourced from, that those are totally different things. So yeah, I definitely want to have to do do my research. Um, Jared, I mean, look like yeah, yeah, just 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 because uh, just because a stock has a high short interest or even a short interest of over a hundred percent, like GameStop, doesn't mean that there's naked shorting going on because you can lend out the same shares of stock more than once. So you know, uh, I suspect that's what was going on with GameStop that had a short interest of one hundred and forty percent. I don't think that there was naked shorting going on. Maybe I'm just naive. Uh, maybe I'm naive too, but yes, uh, you're saying it. I, I trust your opinion and expertise. Someone else, a trader who's been in these markets a long time, I was on the phone with him back in January, and, and he speculated the exact same thing, that it, it was rehypothecated multiple times, which is a problem in its own right, but that's different from naked short selling. Yeah. Jared, my final question on inflation is, you've got this sense of unease about the number tomorrow. Are you positioning your portfolio? Is your unease sufficient that you are thinking about making moves, or are you going to hold steady? Uh, I'm I'm thinking about putting on a broad market hedge, um, short term options, ninety um, percent strike. Um, I just haven't done it yet. So, you're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Okay, interesting, interesting. Um, Jared, I, I think the one thing we haven't talked about yet is Bitcoin. There was the, Bit, uh, the Bitcoin conference in Miami over the weekend. My colleagues, Ed Harrison and Ash Bennington, um, we're there. I was reading your newsletter at the Daily Dirt Nap today. You had a lot of thoughts. What did you make of the uh, sort of vibe at that conference, as well as perhaps the price action of Bitcoin? Yeah. Uh, so, first of all, uh, you know, I've seen some video clips of the conference of some of the parties. So I'm really, I'm kind of put out that nobody asked me to DJ. You know, I think I, I think I think I should have been there DJing that that party. Jared, you um, totally should have been. I think you might have ruined your chances <laughs> when you said, um, I, I've sold at the top or something. <laughs> <laughs> I am persona non grata. I'm actually, I'm at, the, I'm at the bottom of a dog pile right now. Like my mentions are just uh, uh, a, a flaming dumpster right now. Um, anyway, uh, just what two things you don't tweet about, vaccines and Bitcoin, because it just gets out of control. Anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, from, from a sentiment standpoint, you know, I, I've seen some of the panels and I've seen some of the parties and I've read some articles about it. And, um, it reminds me of 2017, April of 2017, which was the real estate wealth expo in Toronto with Pitbull and Tony Robbins as the featured speakers. And if you saw now, I should have gone to that. I really should have. And I didn't, but I saw videos of that. And it was it was like a religious experience. You had these Canadian real estate investors and they're putting their their hands in the air and they're just like, it's nuts. Absolutely nuts. And it was the same thing, you know, whole thing with Max Kaiser ripping up dollar bills. I mean, it's just, you know, so I look at this stuff and um, I, you know, this is maybe this is sort of my very cynical view of markets, but the Market corrections continue until people feel enough pain, okay? And people haven't felt enough pain yet. And part of that is because of the expectation 
that of volatility with Bitcoin. So people have been trained to tolerate a higher level of volatility with Bitcoin. So, you know, a correction of 50% is really like a one or two standard deviation move and people are just used to it. The problem with an asset that is that volatile is that if it moves another couple standard deviations, then you have a drawdown of 80%, and then you're faced with some really tough choices. You know, uh, I saw a chart of Bitcoin that was um, inverted. Okay, so upside down chart of Bitcoin. And uh, there, there was this big rounded bottom and it comes up and there's a consolidation pattern that it's breaking out. But it's like, if you saw that chart, you would say that is the worst chart I have ever seen in my entire life. I mean, when you turn it around and it's right side up Bitcoin. So um, I'm still bearish, you know, I'm, I'm still bearish. And we can talk about MicroStrategy, you know, and I can disclose that I have puts on MicroStrategy. Um, anyway, the bond offering that MicroStrategy did was really exceptional because it's straight debt. I mean, before the issue converts, I don't remember the coupon on the converts. I think it was pretty low, but this was six and an eight. And what's amazing is, you know, it was $500 million. I, I don't know a single person that bought these bonds, but it's amazing what people will do in a zero interest rate environment to get 6% yield. You know what I mean? Like it's like if you're that desperate for yield that you're going to buy these. And by the way, if you buy these bonds, it's you're basically like you get none of the upside of Bitcoin, but all of the downside. I mean, the upside you get is the coupon, but you get all the downside. It, it's like, it, it makes no sense to me. So there's a lot of crazy stuff going on out there. Yeah, so you're talking about a bond that was issued that MicroStrategy issued Michael Saylor to buy Bitcoin. Previously, it had been a convertible bond, which if the stock price goes to a certain level, then you can convert that to an equity. You convert that to a stock, so you do have the upside. But in this case, there is no such upside. So, Jared, I have to ask you, who do you think it made a worse trade, MicroStrategy or the people who bought MicroStrategy's <laughs> bonds? <laughs> I, I I think the people who bought the bonds actually, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'd it's, have to agree nuts. with you. Yeah. Um, someone else wants to ask. Uh, let's see. Luis G has a question. Any comments on the recent story with Bitcoin and El Salvador price action, notwithstanding? Um, I'm still trying to formulate some thoughts on that. I mean, look, like you know, Bitcoin's up. 15% today or something like that on this El, El Salvador news. Uh, you know, El, El Salvador, you know, in the context of any country in the world is pretty insignificant, uh, but it's symbolic, you know, it's symbolic that a sovereign nation would accept Bitcoin as legal tender, you know, which is something that the Bitcoin people have been trying to get all along. So I understand the symbolism of it. Um, I don't think if I don't think from a flow standpoint it meaningfully chase, changes the price of Bitcoin. I think it's really it's really a matter of sentiment. So, yeah. And to what degree, Jerry, do you think that Bitcoin can be used as a currency? I know you're you're not a believer in it in any of its forms, but specifically on its use as a currency, as a means of exchange, is someone who are the people going to be going to the coffee shop and buying coffee with Bitcoin? Are people going to be buying a house with Bitcoin? Um, what do you think about that? Well, these were questions that were asked a long time ago, like in 2014. Um, you know, and, and because 
uh, transactions are uh, slow and cumbersome and they take a while and uh, you have to deal with incredible price volatility. You know, one of the there was there was something I tweeted about the Bitcoin conference that um, got a lot of engagement. And it was uh, did you see this? It was, was it um, about 50 percent or no, no, it was um, uh, it was a picture. There was a woman who was like a presenter on stage and there was a PowerPoint slide behind her and she was giving away free Bitcoin. And she said, we're giving away twenty one hundred dollars in Bitcoin. Oh, yeah, I did see and, this actually. And I'm like, I'm like, this is a Bitcoin conference like you think that you would denominate your Bitcoin in Bitcoin. Like they should say, we're giving away 0.05 Bitcoin, but they said we're giving away $2,100 of Bitcoin. So everybody is still doing this mental mathematics where they're like changing stuff into dollars. And really like in order for Bitcoin to be accepted, then it has to be the unit of account. And people have to start thinking in terms of Bitcoin, but we're many years away from that yet. I honestly, I agree with you. I think that there are a few people who think of, oh, I have one Bitcoin and that's that. I don't really care about the price, but I think the vast majority of people who have Bitcoin think about it as how many dollars. And that's why you see you know, tensions running hot when it goes from 64 to 233 and then 33 back up to 36. Jerry, what, what I was getting at is that, let's say I'm a, I'm a hodler of Bitcoin. I love Bitcoin. I'm a you know, Bitcoin maximalist, whatever you want to say. I'm, I'm into Bitcoin. And you are a real estate investor, um, and you are not into Bitcoin. I want to buy your house. For me to buy your, your house in Bitcoin, that would have to mean two things. Number one, I would have to pay you in Bitcoin, which means I'm essentially going short Bitcoin because I'm selling my Bitcoin and getting paid in a house. And I wouldn't want to do that. I'd rather hold it. If I think it's going to 10x, why would I ever sell my Bitcoin? And you see people like Michael Saylor, um, who you know you, you can't doubt his his conviction. He's saying I'm never going to sell my Bitcoin. I don't, I don't think Michael Saylor is going to be buying a house in Bitcoin. And you, you're a real estate investor. You're, you're not a believer in Bitcoin. Are you going to be accepting this currency that could swing wildly overnight? So I think, you know, and I have to credit um, the uh, NY professor of valuation, Oswald Zamotorin, who, who I interviewed recently, who made this point. But for there to be a transaction in Bitcoin, it requires a seller who is bullish on Bitcoin and a buyer who is bearish on Bitcoin. Interesting. Yeah, there's been a couple things. I, I've seen a couple transactions that were done denominated in Bitcoin. Uh, the, I saw the Oakland A's about six months ago, the baseball team, um, were selling luxury box, boxes for one Bitcoin. It was denominated in Bitcoin. And there's actually a club in Miami called Treehouse, which I've been to a bunch of times. And they were selling the club and they were selling the club for Bitcoin. So I've seen it. I've seen it a couple of times, but it's not commonplace yet. Jared, we've got another question. Um, John Whitaker wants to know, best way to hedge Bitcoin position. So you have puts on MicroStrategy. What do you think about that as compared to buying puts on Bitcoin itself or selling perhaps calls on it? Um, I, th I think MicroStrategy is, is a better trade uh, because you get, you get some convexity. Um, because, you know, Michael Saylor's uh, average price on Bitcoin is about $24,000. Um, if, if the price of Bitcoin gets below or approaches $24,000, there's a lot of implied gamma. There's a lot of gamma at that $24,000 level. So you'll see the price of that stock uh, accelerate to the downside very quickly. Interesting. Jerry, we have a question from someone. They want to know about gold and silver. What are you thinking about that specifically in context of inflation? 
I don't have any new thoughts from the last time we talked. You know, I'm still holding it. I've held it for 16 years. Uh, I think the price action is okay. You know, I think the lows that we made a couple of months ago when it got below 1700, I don't think we're going to see that level again. Um, could be interesting tomorrow with CPI, you know. Um, if a CPI comes in pretty hot, let's say it comes in over 5%, probably going to be a good day for gold, you know. So, And then the Fed um, is going to have their FOMC meeting next week, re release its minutes. What do you make of there? What are, what are you expecting for does, what's the Fed going to do? Are they going to make some noises about tapering? And does it hinge on tomorrow's CPI reading? Uh, I think it does partially hinge on tomorrow's CPI reading, if only because of optics. You know what I mean? The higher inflation goes, the, the more difficult it becomes for the Fed not to act. Okay, Just, just purely out of optics. And one, one thing I have, th this is very important. One thing I have always said about the Fed as an institution, at least in the last 20 years, is that the Fed pursues the path of least embarrassment, okay? So they do whatever is not embarrassing. So what would be embarrassing is for inflation to skyrocket higher and have the Fed at, be at a standstill, okay? So if inflation starts to go higher, they, the, the optics of this start to become bad and it starts to get embarrassing for them and then they start to move. Remember. The, I mean, the Fed is a for-profit institution. It's a bank, but they're a, they're you know de facto government employees. I used to work for the government. The government is not motivated by profit and loss. The government is motivated by public perception. And if if you look bad, that's what motivates government employees. You know, so it's it's all about optics. Mm, very interesting, Jared. As we as we reach to a close, I think it's it's time to let the viewers know about the exciting events that you and I are going to be involved at first. So the, my first, I want to let the audience know about the Real Vision Festival of Learning. Um, you can sign up for tickets. Their link is going to be in the description. If you are already, I believe, a Plus member, a Plus and Pro member, you can go free. It's uh, June 23rd to June 25th. Also stay tuned for this Friday. Raul is going to be um, releasing his special guest that he is going to be interviewing, which uh, I know who it is, and I think it's going to be really exciting. And Jared, you too are going to be doing an interview for the Festival of Learning. You're going to be interviewing Brent Donnelly. Yeah. I, I mean, I've known Brent for about 15, 16 years. Uh, we used to work together at Lehman. Uh, he's got a great book out that just came out, Alpha Trader, which talks about really the practice and psychology of trading and the math of it. So uh, I, he says he's going to send me a copy. I still haven't gotten it yet. Okay. Well, uh, I, I, I did blurb the book, but um, anyway, so yeah, I'm doing that at the Festival of Learning, and I'm actually going to be in New York, so I'll be I'll be filming that live, and then we have the party later that day, Friday, 25th. June 25th. Um, by the way, so the party is at Do Supper Club, 59 West 21st Street. It starts at 8 p.m. Everybody's invited, except we only have 14 tickets left. It is almost sold out. It's so there's a short squeeze. Is there, there's basically a naked short squeeze on. There's a, sh there's a short squeeze on the party. Yeah. So yeah. if you want to go, just go into my Twitter timeline and just scroll down. And I've a bunch of times I've posted the link to party tickets and you'll see it there. And you can always tweet it out too. So yeah, definitely. Well, so I'm going, Max is going. I think uh, we also have two other people from Real Vision who are going. They may bring a plus one. I also was uh, hanging out with my friend over the weekend who uh, works in 
uh, works at Alliance Bernstein, and he, I told him about it. He was really excited about it. Then his girlfriend was really excited about it too. So they've got to, they've got to hurry up, or they're going to be shit out of luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay, so lots, lots to look forward to. Uh, not just tomorrow's consumer price index. Jared Dillian, thank you so much for joining me. And if you're watching this at home, thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks a lot. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.